Good evening, folks. I'm Ed Longabaugh. I'm the pastor at Grace Presbyterian Church, as I'm sure Michael has told you. It's good to be back. I was able to speak to Zoom a couple of years ago. I wish I could see you in person, but I guess this will have to do. We're in the midst of a series of messages on 2 Peter. Essentially, the message of 2 Peter is be sure of your calling. Be secure in it. Know it. Be confident in it. Last week, Matt spoke to you on how to prove your faith. And the main thing about proving your faith is to prove it to yourselves, to develop strong inner convictions. And Matt gave you several really good ways that this happens, reasons to believe. If you heard last week's talk, you remember the story of Matt's friend, Fidel. And Fidel was not a believer when Matt was. And so Fidel would occasionally kind of poke Matt and say, prove your faith is true. Can you prove it to me? Well, that's a common challenge that folks will often throw at you, throw at Christians, and it'll put you on the defensive. So before we go to chapter two of Second Peter, I wanna give you maybe one or two answers to those who say, prove it, because this is how we push back in an appropriate way. So if someone says to you, prove it, maybe you could say to them, well, what would you consider proof? What would convince you? And I bet they would not know how to respond because chances are, at least for most people, that question, can you prove it, is a smokescreen. Now, there are sincere speakers, rather sincere seekers, and I think the right counsel for them is to say, ask God to show you, because you will find throughout the history of Christianity that God is willing to do that to those who seek Him. Because remember, as Matt said, it is God who convinces. All the proofs in the world may not convince, but God can do it in your inner being. Well, chapter two of Peter, I've entitled that Pushing Back, because here Peter pushes back, not on the people themselves, obviously, but he pushes back against what is false. At the end of chapter one, Peter has said, back in the day, back in the Old Testament days, you could trust the prophets because their word was brought to them and then to you by the Holy Spirit. However, back in those days, there were also false prophets. You can read them about, read about them in uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah. And these false prophets would lead people astray by saying, this is what the Lord says, and then they would give some message that the people wanted to believe. So for instance, the bad guy army is at the gates of the city. And the false prophets would say, don't worry, you don't need to make any changes, just believe. Where the truth prophets were saying, you need to repent, or this army is going to break the walls down. Well, the false prophets brought a popular message, but it was false. The bad guys took the city. Well, Peter says that there are still people out there saying things that are false false messages from God, and he calls them false teachers. They, like the false prophets, they bring a message that's popular, but it leads people away from Christ, and it leads them to their spiritual destruction. This is Peter pushing back. Now, in Peter's time, it doesn't look like they had arrived on the scene yet, but they were on their way, because in Old Testament times, in Peter's time, in our time, there are always people eager to gather a following, to get rich, or to have some other thing accrue to them that is not part of the gospel. And so Peter writes 
this warning, beware, beware of false teachers and their teaching, and caution for those who might get sucked in. So here's the first verse as Peter writes it. But there will be false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. They will secretly introduce heresies. Well, after a couple thousand years, the secrecy of the heresies and the methods of these false teachers are not so secret anymore because they tend to be of the same pattern. And usually what happens is that some charismatic person, someone with a forceful personality will speak with great conviction and they will have a knack for speaking to emotional needs versus presenting the true gospel. They'll speak about the Bible, they'll talk about Jesus and salvation and heaven, but they will distort all those things. Now their false teaching may concern things like the end times, the resurrection, marriage, or something that hooks people into following them, uh, a felt need. One example of this comes from a woman named Gwen Shamblin, who is now Gwen Shamblin Laura. She began her career as a nutritionist and she published a highly successful book called The Way Down Diet. That's W-E-I-G-H, Way Down Diet. And the core theory that she expounds, I think is a good one. She said that people have two needs, one for food, one for God. And those needs get confused. And many people will try and fill their hunger for God with food. That is good psychology, and I believe it is based on good theology. Well, Gwen Shamblin began to get very popular, and so she recorded her teachings. She was uh, a Christian, as far as we know, and so she goes into churches. She went online, made videos on the web, and so she has become very famous and successful, and I suspect rather wealthy. Not long ago, she started a church uh, near Nashville, and people, no doubt, were drawn to the church because of her books and her classes. Somewhere along the way, her grasp of the Bible began to go astray. And her teaching includes things like this, that the doctrine of the Trinity is not biblical. Jesus Christ is not God the Son. He's only the Son of God, not in a divine sense. And Jesus and God, she says, are two separate beings. They are unequal in power and glory. That's a teaching that was discredited nearly 2,000 years ago. But on top of the false teaching, she has a practice in her church that if anyone criticizes her or disagrees with her, they are, they are out of God's will because she, she claims, is a prophet from God. We have, my wife and I have an acquaintance here from Gig Harbor who happened to move out there, they got involved with the church, and the wife of this couple began to disagree out loud with the teaching of the church. Our friend, the husband, was told to divorce his wife because of this. Well, last I heard, they had not divorced, but they were still plugged into the church, and the only reason the marriage has lasted is because the wife decided to keep quiet to save the marriage. Most sub-Christian religions, call them cults, have a lot of things in common with that particular church and that particular preacher. They are authoritarian because the power in the group tends to be in the hands of one or maybe a few. They teach from the Bible, 
but their teaching is aberrant. And many of them say that we are the one true religion and the rest have got it wrong. And without exception, all of them, and I mean literally without exception, will deny the full divinity of Jesus Christ. They will also deny, almost certainly, the, the Trinity as it has come down to us, <laughs> down to us in uh, Orthodox teaching. That includes Mormonism, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and every other religion that has its springboard from true Christianity, but which no longer matches up with biblical Christianity. Well, here we are in the 21st century, and these cult organizations are not as influential as they were in the last century. In fact, it wasn't that long ago, between the 70s and the 90s of the 20th century, where you may recall some famous ones. Jonestown, for one, is the most notorious. And then there were the Branch Davidians, and you may also have heard of Heaven's Gate. All of these were groups led by a strong leader with aberrant teaching, and all of them led to mass suicide. In fact, if you've heard the expression, they drank the Kool-Aid, that comes from Jonestown, where 900 people drank cyanide-laced Kool-Aid and died in suicide. To me, that proves the saying, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. Well, in a time and culture like ours that has become increasingly anti-religious, these cults have pushed a lot of people to conclude that all, religion, all religions are alike. They're harmful, including Christianity. In fact, in the recent sharing of, of, of stars making videos and music and things like that, you may have heard a, a resurgence of John Lennon's Imagine just in the past few days. Well, says Peter, the false teachers are coming. So he pushes back on them and especially on their false teaching. Be warned, be careful, be watchful for them and for their teaching. Well, our time in history is not defined so much by religions, whether they're biblical or whether they're cultish. Our, our time is more strongly defined by secularism. And secularism, as you know, is the thinking that rejects religion. It rejects culture. And individuals are defined by human accomplishment, by nature, by reason, by science, by progress. And our version of secularism in this country, it values personal choice, choice multiculturalism, and toleration. And if there is a slogan, it would be this, man is the measure of all things. That comes from a Greek philosopher named Protagoras who lived around 500 BC. And so you can see that secularism is not new. It has always existed in some form, at least in the Western world, the ancient world, the medieval world, and of course, the modern world. Now the American version of secularism is nearly absolute. And I suppose if there is a rock core value, it would be total human freedom in all things. And as a result in our culture, there is a strong strain of anti-authoritarian feeling. Don't tell me what to do. The individual is supreme, not the family, not the institutions, not the government, and certainly not the church. And informally, you have heard th things like this, I'm sure. 
you can be anything you want or be true to yourself. Now, given its commitment to individual freedom, this secularism is surprisingly intolerant. And if you have ever agreed publicly with the current views on sexuality, you can feel the hostility. Nowhere is secularism and human freedom more evident than how it views sexuality. The key word is choice, my choice. And that's not just with regard to abortion, but with any aspect of sexuality. I determine my values, what I do, with whom. I choose my orientation. I choose my gender. I choose my partner or partners. I choose who or even what, in some cases, I marry. So what this has given us is freedom to choose sexual partners. It's given us abortion on demand. It has required that we embrace homosexuality as a valid lifestyle. It encourages those in question to choose their own gender. And I'm pretty sure, in fact, you can see signs of it already, that the next big public issue will be polyamory. That's the legal freedom to have multiple spouses. All of which, I'm sure you know, go contrary to the biblical teaching on sexuality. All of these ideas, along with their consequences, have given us a staggering number of victims. Think of the number of children who are raised without one or even both parents, or of the enormous number of failed marriages. Think of the rise of sexually transmitted diseases, which have their own consequences. There's also been a return to the practice and the belief in eugenics. And one example is that there are some people who just don't deserve to be born. We are now able to select gender for babies and some are choosing to do this. And the bottom line is that there is a level of pain and brokenness and confusion that we cannot measure. All of these things Peter is telling us are the result of false teaching. And so, he pushes back. Well, speaking of Peter, let's return then to chapter, I'm sorry, to verse two of chapter two. And he says this, many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. The false teachers and those who follow them, Peter says, will bring the way of truth or the gospel into disrepute. Well, how is that? Well, a couple ways that I can think of. One is that if we lose the clear teaching of the gospel, we come, become rather irrelevant to the culture because we're not a whole lot different. And if we adopt the lifestyle of the false teachers, which Peter will deal with in just a moment, we are rightly called hypocrites. And then on to verse 3. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. The classic made-up story is how Mormonism began, with the gold tablets that Joseph Smith supposedly saw with new revelations from God. Funny how those tablets disappeared. Other groups simply will claim, well, God told me I'm a prophet. And what is it that these false teachers want from you? Well, first of all, they want power. I believe that power is the basic core human motivation. And like all of those core motivations, morally speaking, that's neutral. 
all of us need some degree of power over circumstances, over nature, over others, over ourselves. Well, the power that these false teachers want is over you. They want your loyalty, unquestioned, your agreement with them, and your devotion. The other two classic motivations, money and sex, they follow close behind. Money will get you all the perks and luxuries of life. And sex, I do believe that men and women derive different kinds of satisfaction from sexual control. For men, it's a well-known thing. It's simply physical pleasure, the gratification of a conquest whenever you want. For women, I think it's a bit more complex. And I think that it is a desire to be desired. But for those who desire, it is never fulfilled. I am a goddess. Look at me, want me, but do not touch. Now, in the middle section of chapter two, the long section, Peter has some really harsh words for the false teachers because he speaks of the condemnation and the judgment that awaits them. He says, in essence, they are going to hell. Peter is furious with them. And not surprisingly, because when you go back to the Gospels and read what Jesus had to say, his harshest words were not for his enemies, but for those whose teaching, whose false teaching, kept people away from salvation. There is such a thing as truth and falsehood, and both of them lead to different consequences and to different ends. And for Peter, and of course for Jesus, those who purvey falsehood, who lead people to different, or rather, to destructive ends, their anger knows no limit. Now look in verse 9 for just a moment, because in the midst of all those harsh words, there is a little bit of encouragement. Verse 9 says this, The Lord knows how to rescue godly people from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. In that context, Peter mentions the stories of Lot and of Noah, people who escaped God's judgment. Both these men and their families lived at different times in history, and the times that they lived in were times of just gross debauchery. Both times God acted to judge the people of that time and place. Yet Noah and his family, because of the ark, and Lot and his family, because of the angelic rescuers, they escaped. So Peter is saying, if you find yourself caught up in this kind of debauchery, this lifestyle, and you want to escape, God will provide a way out. I would encourage you to read both these stories. They're both in Genesis because God has some pretty creative escape routes. But let's move on to one more verse, and then I'll explain another kind of a, of a false teacher. Their idea, verses 13 and 14, the idea of the false teachers, their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. Now, Peter's pushback on the false teachers is certainly harsh, but those harsh words also contain a bit of practical advice because he teaches us in these words how to recognize false teachers. For instance, 
If you look at their lifestyle, you'll notice perhaps public carousing, things like drunkenness, out of control behavior, grabbing attention for themselves. What they do, they do to excess, eating, drinking, sex, whatever. And there is a strong tendency toward adultery as they exploit others, they lack boundaries, always on the lookout for new conquests. Bottom line, Peter says, if you can see their lifestyles, these folks are not hard to spot. Or as Jesus puts it quite simply, a tree is known by its fruit. Here's what to look for, for instance, just to summarize. Look, of course, at their teaching. This is number one. It will always, I mean, always contain some misrepresentation of who Christ is. Sometimes though, you can't get a hard look at their teaching, but if you can't find help, then secondly, look at their lifestyle. Are they control freaks? Can they tolerate disagreement? Are they accountable to anyone in the structure of their organization? Do they claim to have some special in with God that you and I don't? And of course, as Peter has just said, check out their lifestyle. People who make their living from the gospel are rarely, and I'm guessing never, called to lavish living. So how's their public behavior? How do they conduct themselves sexually? And fourthly, listen carefully to what they appeal to. Peter says they will appeal to the flesh, to the desires we have that are legitimate, but which go beyond rightful limits. And the best example in our day and age is the prosperity gospel. Whatever it is that you want, God will provide. The most blatant form I'm sure you are familiar with and may have seen on television is this, that God wants everyone to be healthy and wealthy and successful. And the degree that you have health and wealth and success depends on how much faith you have. Related to this are speaking words of faith. And maybe you've heard someone pray like this, I speak a blessing of healing over you in the name of Jesus, be healed as if the words themselves had the power to heal. We'll come back to that in a moment. One of the most appealing forms of the prosperity gospel might be what you would call the prosperity of self. And that comes to us in the ministry of the enormously popular Joel Osteen. Osteen is the pastor of Lakewood Church in Houston about 30,000 members. He is an enormously successful author, speaker, and now in the media, as he is in speaking about this coronavirus outbreak we've had, he is now in the eyes of some a religious authority. He is good looking, he has a winning smile, a dazzling personality, and he is a very gifted communicator. I know nothing negative about his personal lifestyle, his faithfulness in marriage, his public behavior, it seems okay. When it comes to his teaching though, you can smell a rat. We don't have time for an in-depth critique, but let me just give you a handful of his book titles and I think they'll tell you something about his teaching. Become a better you. It's your time. Then there's one called breakout, which presumably means breaking out of your negative self-image that limits you. Another one, every day of Friday, 
And the one to me that says it all is your best life now. Osteen is the marriage of the prosperity gospel and the self-help movement and positive thinking. He appeals to our need for self-esteem, for self-respect, and for self-actualization. And these are legitimate needs if they are taught in balance with the biblical teaching on sin. So you can go to YouTube, you can pick any random sermon, and you will see that Osteen does hold a Bible, and he starts every sermon with the congregation holding their Bibles, repeating a kind of a mantra. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Taken at face value, there's nothing wrong with that statement. It generates enthusiasm. It makes people listen hard to sermon, and lots of us preachers would love to have that kind of enthusiasm. One sermon begins this way. People cannot override what God has ordained for you. Bad breaks, detours, injustice, they are not stopping your identity. Rather, they're not stopping your destiny. They are moving you into your destiny. And actually, that sounds like one of our favorite verses from Romans 8, that God works all things for good to those who love him and called according to his purpose. Before I offer a critique of Osteen's teaching, let me ask you a question. Could you assess his teaching? If someone asked you if he or she should listen and follow Osteen, could you give reasons why or why not? Could you read one of his books or listen to a few of his sermons and be able to give an answer to that question? Here's the challenge. As you digest what Osteen is preaching and teaching, do you know enough of the gospel, enough of the Bible to see where he twists his teaching? For instance, does he seem to say that you, not God, are the center of the universe? That God is here to serve you, your goals, your ambitions. Would Osteen be able, for instance, to preach from the book of Lamentations, which was written in the rubble of a destroyed city, and declare that God is good, that every day his mercies are new, his faithfulness is great? Does he teach that the path toward pleasing God is obedience? And that sometimes the more obedient you are, the harder your life becomes. Would he say that pain and suffering in life are sometimes actually put there by God for your good? Could he preach? How would he preach that passage from 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh and how he prayed to have it removed and God said no? Does he teach that costly service, not your fulfillment, is God's plan for you? And that your personal failure may well be part of it as well. Osteen and those like him are part of what is called the Word of Faith movement. And in that thinking, faith is considered to be an actual force, not simply trust in God's Word. And that words spoken in faith contain this force so that speaking words of faith can actually create your reality for you. And this is what gives you your best life now, as the book title would have it. And that is what is behind 
the mantra that opens every one of Osteen's sermon. If you speak it, it becomes a reality. In fact, this sort of thinking has permeated our culture. You hear and see it everywhere, like in the parking lot at the Gig Harbor YMCA. Make today great. Crush your workout. You can do it. I wonder how the people who have been laid off because of the coronavirus are doing with that sort of approach. I know. They would say, or Osteen would teach them to say, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. You've heard that before. Well, how's that working for you? Now, Osteen is very popular, and he is respected by many. Uh, but if you disagree with what I've been saying about him, I would... Uh, go to the website equip.org and type in Osteen in the search bar and you will get absolutely dev devastating critiques of his teaching. If Osteen and those like him fit Peter's description, then they will certainly face extremely harsh judgment. Why? Again, because they have led people away from the salvation that is in Christ. Let me offer, speaking of self-esteem, uh, a more biblical perspective on self-esteem, which is, I believe, a legitimate need, and many are crying out for it these days. What does the scripture say? The scripture says that in myself, I am God's enemy. I am disobedient. I am a rebel, I deserve judgment. But the scriptures also say that God, through the crucifixion of Jesus, says, you are worth the death of my son. I sent him to the cross so that I could have you as my son or my daughter. As someone has said, your value, the basis for your esteem, is set by the price paid for you. And knowing those things are cause for great confidence and great humility. That's the basis of true self-esteem. I know that what I've been saying is full of criticism and condemnation, but sometimes the scriptures contain harsh words for us, as Peter does here in chapter 2. So in closing, let me encourage you to let these words be both a challenge and an encouragement to you, to become steeped in the full counsel of God, to have the discernment to know truth from falsehood, and to walk in confidence that the God of the universe has set his love on you. Amen.